We're looking at Genesis 17, and to kind of, again, always give you a context. You never pick up a book, open it to the middle, read a paragraph, and assume you have the meaning without the context, without the understanding of what's going on around that. Last week we looked at Genesis 16. It's one of Sarah and uh, Abram's lower moments. It's when um, they together plot that Abram will have a child by their housekeeper, Hagar, which they do. And uh, I want to make this point before we start. I actually think this is one of the better kind of, I think this is one of the more persuasive reasons, uh, more persuasive elements of Christianity that you kind of have to deal with when you reject it. Um, If you're going to start a religion or a movement, I don't think this is how you start it. Uh, Abram was God, the first person God called to start his new covenant people. And what we have here, what you normally do, what we've done with George Washington, right, is dismissed all of his sins and we've glorified him. And he's this moral, upstanding person. All the heroes of our country, of the political movement we're a part of, the United States of America, we canonize them. We do away with all the bad things. We don't talk about how any of them might have enslaved or anything like that. We just talk about all the wonderful things they did. The Bible is relentlessly honest about the people that God has called. And like, at this point, Abram makes Mark Sanford look like a saint. He really does. He pimped out his wife to a local political leader. And then he has a bastard son by his housekeeper. And this is the next verse. This is God. Again, all that to say, I think that's one of the persuasive elements of Christianity because if it has this many people that are this flawed, these kind of movements don't get off the ground unless they're real, unless the Holy Spirit's true. Um, So we're, it is, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 17, it begins when Abraham was 99 years old. That's 13 years later. Um, Hebrews 11, 12 actually tells us, this is God's word, Hebrews eleven twelve says at this point, Abram is as good as dead. Um, those are words from Scripture. And one of the reasons I think it's, this happens 13 years later is Abram's plan for having a son by his housekeeper is to have an heir. Because the, all of this hinges on God making a great nation and blessing the world through Abram's heir. And so it's 13 years later, which actually means Ishmael is entering into puberty. At that point in time, people got married at a very young age, which is a really good idea, but that's another conversation. But um, <laughs> at that point in time, his son is actually, in a sense, becoming adult in the ancient Near Eastern eyes. And so it makes sense that as soon as his son, who is not going to be the heir, who is not going to be the one through whom God blesses the world, is coming of age, and God's kind of interrupting him. And he's reaffirming and, uh, and, and kind of in a sense, further cementing and demonstrating his covenant love for his people. This is not something different from chapter 15, the other covenant ceremony we looked at. This is is complementary of chapter 15. It's kind of like at a wedding, you know how there's the statement of intent, and then there's the the statement of intent, and then there are the vows and the exchange of rings. There's several elements of the covenant ceremony that go together. This is another element of the same covenant. So this is Genesis chapter 17, the first 14 verses. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. 
I'll make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I'll give to you your offspring at, uh, to your, to you, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Let's ask that God teach us. Lord, as we consider your word, we come to it struggling to figure out what it looks like to be your people. It's hard. Um, there are so many inadequate ways we try to live before you. There's so many inadequate ways we understand the Christian life. I pray now as we consider your call to Abram, you changing his name, you giving him covenant sign that we would find here we, that we begin to understand what it means to be your people on this campus. In your name we pray. Amen. Um. When Elizabeth and I got married, I received some marriage advice. Where's Elizabeth? She changed seats. There she is. Um, I got some marriage advice that my grandfather kind of doled out to all of his grandchildren. Some of y'all might have heard me say this. And uh, <laughs> during the engagement, he says, boy, you kind of got to know him. He's, if you've seen Big Fish, have y'all seen this movie? Okay, imagine the stories are more fantastic and all true. That's kind of my grandfather. Um, <laughs> he goes, boy, you need to know one thing when you get married. You're at the end of all your problems, the front end. <laughs> and the negative spin's not what we're going for here, but there is one principle that he's actually trying to communicate. He's making this point. This is not just one-time event. Like, getting married is not like, oh, finally I got married, now I can move on with my life. It's the beginning of a whole new life belonging to someone. There's no such thing as this kind of one-time event where you do this one thing, you kind of get in, you got your spouse, and then you keep going on with your same life. No, your whole life is completely changed because you belong to someone else. This is similar to buying a house. This is similar to trying out making a sports team, finally getting a job, finally getting into college, right? All of these are very significant, glorious, one-time historical events. But they're not merely one-time historical events. Because all of those historical offenses then actually shape and command your life from then on. You actually belong where they put you. Does that make sense? There's no such thing as this kind of one-time historical event in terms of these big things where you really are committed, where you really get accepted, where you become belonging to someone. Marriage isn't a one-time event. It's a one-time event that then has dramatic repercussions and completely changes and shapes and actually commands your life. It changes your company for the rest of your life who you're with. It changes your identity. I'm no longer Britain. I am now Britain and Elizabeth. Uh, it changes your mission. My purpose is no longer me. My purpose is our family. Um, and in fact, also, I wear a sign to signify it, right? And Elizabeth wears a sign to signify it. And I bring all that up because there's actually, that same principle is true 
about knowing God, about being a Christian. What Christianity is not, and this is the way it's often treated, is it's not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not, okay, I had faith, I went up front, I, made the, I, I, I prayed the prayer, whatever it is, I made the commitment, and then you kind of go on doing about your life the same way. That's not what Christianity is. It's actually being a people belonging to God, set apart for God, consecrated to God. It's another word for it. I'm actually consecrated to Elizabeth. I'm set apart to her. And as we see in this passage, we're set apart to an everlasting covenant. Christianity is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not praying a prayer and getting a pass on the afterlife. It's not that. It's part of that. It's certainly a huge part of it. But you're not merely saved. You're actually saved to something into something you're actually redeemed for a purpose. You're no longer an orphan. You belong to the household of God. You're not your own. You actually, you're not your own anymore. Did you know that? None of your decisions are your own. If you're in Christ, you're not your own. You're actually bought for a price and the life you live is not your own. The things you do, you don't do with your body. You do with God's body. And God calls you to live your life as one who is consecrated to Him because that's what you are. And what I want you to see tonight is that as you are called to live consecrated to God for Him, it is still grace from beginning to end. Because we also, a lot of times, make two errors. Um, I think it was Luther that said being a Christian is like being a drunk man riding a horse. You're always falling off on one side or the other. And um, there are two errors. Uh, there are two errors oftentimes we vacillate between in the Christian life. And the first error is this, that... You get saved by grace. There's that sweet moment where you're forgiven, where you find out Jesus has mercy on sinners like you, but then you're maintained by works. So you're saved by grace. You kind of get, you get kind of cleared up back to neutral with God, and then it's your responsibility to kind of stay neutral or slightly above neutral and not incur any more debt. And this looks like fear-driven Christianity, where it's really fear that drives you. Um, and it looks like do stuff or you're going to lose your membership. Or you do stuff or you're going to lose your good standing. And Paul addresses this kind of thinking very directly in Galatians. We talked about it a little bit last week. He says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, by faith, by grace, are you now being perfected by flesh, by your works? Are you so foolish as to think you got saved by grace, but yet you remain in God's favor your work and that's one of the things that's kind of one of the sides we fall down on at times but on the other hand there's also i got saved by grace but because i got saved by grace i can't try at all because any effort means that you're a pharisee right and so i'm saved by grace but then i'm not going to do anything and the bible actually very explicitly addresses that as well in james what good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here's what he's saying. He's not saying you had legitimate faith and then you lost it. What he's saying is, faith without works is dead. It actually never was real faith. You can say the words... But if you don't live into them, if God's grace is not transforming you, it's dead. There's never real faith. 
And that's the other side. So there's, I was saved by grace and now I'm maintained by works. Or I'm, I'm saved by grace and now I'm, by, I'm maintained by not giving any effort. By not living into the Christian life. And what I want you to see tonight is this. Grace works on your behalf. God's grace works on your behalf and your justification and you being made right before God and having a right standing once and for all before Him. And then grace works in you for your consecration, for your sanctification. And I want us to see three things in Abraham's life, Abraham's life tonight is that when God consecrates Abraham to himself, he gives him a new perspective and a new identity and a sealing sign. Chapter 17 begins 13 years after the Hagar incident. And um, Abram's, Ishmael's 13 years old. Again, at this point in time, most, it, actually in chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 18, Abram actually says to God, Oh, that Ishmael, like, Ishmael might live before you. Abram's actually still thinking Ishmael might be the answer, but in fact he's not. And so right when he starts thinking Ishmael could be the answer, God appears to him. And here's what we've got to see from the very beginning. Even the Lord appearing is a grace. It's grace from beginning to end. And even the Lord, before he even shows up, the Lord appeared to Abram. That's grace. That's God initiating. That's God coming to his people. From Genesis 3 to Genesis 12 to Genesis 15 to 17, all throughout Scripture, God comes. God initiates. God comes to his people. And we talk about coming to faith and we talk about coming to Jesus, and that's legitimate language because we do. But it's actually always a response. It's always the second thing that happens. It's always a response to him first coming and drawing us. John six forty four. Jesus says, No one comes to me except that the Father draws him. So even the Lord just coming already, you see it's grace before the conversation even starts. And the Lord appears and says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. And this is what God's doing for Abraham. Well, Abram, he's still Abram at this point. Is he's giving him a new way to view reality. He's utterly changing his perspective on reality. Because what he's saying is, he's saying it's not what we typically think or the way we typically act where it's God's kind of up there and he's kind of evolved, but he's looking in on other stuff because he's got some mission works overseas he's got to look in on and some stuff going on up in New York and Seattle and all that kind of stuff. And he's hoping that you, he's kind of like, I've got RUFUSC going right over here right now, so I'm going to go take care of other things and I'm going to drop in periodically. The Lord is saying, to be my covenant people means that you understand the company you keep, which is the Almighty God. Because you see, the company that you keep changes the way you live. And this is what I mean by this. When you all went home for Easter, if you went home from Easter... You dressed a different way. You spoke a different way. You observed different social standards. You, had, uh, you completely changed your behavior and your outlook and the way you acted as a person so that you fit with a certain set of social values and standards with your family's Easter lunch, right? You didn't act the way you act in your dorm room at 12.30 on Thursday night because you're with a totally different group of people. And the group of people who are actually around you is what determined your decorum, the way you behaved, the way you presented yourself, the way you looked. And what the Lord's saying is, I'm the almighty, all-sufficient God. Walk before me. The company that you keep at all times is the almighty God. 
live as if you live before him? Because you actually do right now. The word to walk is actually the, it's the word Scripture always uses that when the Bible speaks of conducting your whole life. Sometimes we talk about our walk with God and what we mean by that is our prayer times and our quiet times. No, no, your walk is actually everything that you do. It's not merely your devotional life. Your walk is all of your life. And this is a completely, when we begin to see, the first thing he says, I'm God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Everything you do is in my sight, is before me. That changes reality forever to know that divine eyes are constantly watching you and that divine hands are constantly with you. That means right now we sit here before the Lord. That means you will order ice cream and toppings before the Lord. You will watch American Idol before the Lord. You will sleep before the Lord. You will eat a bagel. You will dress. You will shower. You will walk across campus. You will wave to your friends. You will attend class, and you will flirt, and you will play volleyball before the Lord. This is the flirt one that you are laughing at? Is that it? See, the call, to, the call to be blameless is just the logical command of like, do you see that you walk before me? The way you walk before me is to be blameless. The way you walk before your family at Easter looks different. The way you look, walk before your friends on the weekend looks different. What God is saying is actually your ever-present company is me. And walk with this as if that is true. But the word blameless is troublesome, right? It's not just troublesome to us. It's obviously troublesome to Abram. Because we just came off the heels of him having a son by his housekeeper. Later, in Genesis 17, he's actually going to laugh at God because of his promises. And if you keep going, in chapter 20, he actually again has his wife get involved with a local politician sexually. So the word blameless is troublesome. It's not just troublesome for us, it's troublesome for Abram. The call to walk and be blameless before the Lord is actually this. This is actually a better rendering of the word. It's actually the call to be whole or to be complete. It's to be built up or to be mature. And really what it's the sense it's getting after is to be wholeheartedly in all of your being devoted to the Lord. And that feels like an inconsistency. And it feels like what we're saying is Christians are hypocrites, but they're actually not. Here's the shocker. Christians aren't hypocrites, which makes me sound like I'm a hypocrite, right? Um, A hypocrite is someone who says one thing but does another. But Christians are not people who say they have no sin. And in fact, the Bible actually tells us, 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Christians never say we have no sin. Christians never say we are morally better people. In fact, if we say that, the Bible actually says, no, 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 actually you're a liar. Wholehearted devotion to the Lord is it is not not sinning. It's repenting when you do sin. It is not not sinning. It's actually repenting when you do sin. It is by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the flesh, putting to death our sin. Christians aren't hypocrites when they sin. They're actually hypocrites when they don't repent. They're hypocrites when they don't seek grace and mercy because that's what we're claiming What our words are is, we are sinners in need of mercy. We're hypocrites, actually, when we stop seeking mercy. Wholehearted devotion to the Lord is not not sinning. It's not repenting. Because we can't stop altogether sinning in this life. But we can repent 
we can confess and we can seek the Lord and we can slowly over time be transformed by His grace. Be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord is to constantly return to Him in our sin and see that His grace and His mercy is sufficient. The way uh, an old English Puritan said it, Thomas Watson, he says, God is glorified when we receive mercy. When we seek salvation, God actually gets honored by that. You can actually glorify Him by seeking mercy. And he says this, What an encouragement is this to the service of God, to think that while I'm hearing and while I'm praying, I am glorifying God. While I'm furthering actually my own glory in heaven, I'm increasing God's glory. This is the way he says it. Would it not be an encouragement to a subject to hear his prince say to him, You will honor and please me very much if you will go to my gold mine and dig as much gold for yourself as you can carry away. This is what Watson says. So for God to say, go to the ordinances, and what he means by ordinances is the means of grace, the different ways God tells us about his grace, word and prayer and fellowship. Go to the ordinances and get as much grace as you can. Dig out as much salvation as you can, and the more happiness you have, the more God shall count himself glorified. Jesus is blamed so that we could be blameless. God aims his justice at Jesus and he aims his grace at us, the call to walk before the Lord and be blameless is given in that light. And so walk before the Lord and where you're blameworthy, confess and repent and dig and get as much grace as you can. You don't reacquire blame. You don't get saved and then have to maintain it neutral. All we do our whole life is actually more deeply discover that we're more guilty than we thought and that Jesus all along had more graciously covered more than we thought. So, and since the, perspective, the, the application of this is, the first thing is to realize that He is the Lord Almighty, that He is present, that you walk before Him. The way Baptist preacher Spurgeon said it is, um, for a man to be thoroughly sanctified to the Master's service, he must first realize the almightiness and the all-sufficiency and the glory of God. The God whom we serve fills all things and has all power and all riches. If we think little of Him, we shall render little trust to Him and consequently little obedience. But if we have grand conceptions of the glory of God, we shall learn to confide in Him most thoroughly. We shall receive mercies from Him most plentifully. We shall be moved to serve Him most consistently. Sin at the bottom of it very frequently has its origin in low thoughts of God. Take Abram's sin. He couldn't see how God could make him the father of many nations when Sarah, his wife, was old and barren. Hence his error with Hagar. But if he had remembered God, what God now brings to his regulation, recollection, that God is El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one, he would have said, No, I remain true to Sarah, for God can effect his own purposes without my taking torturous means to accomplish them. He is all-sufficient in himself, not dependent upon creature strength. I will patiently hope and quietly wait see the fulfillment of the Master's promises. When we think little of God, we trust Him little, we expect little, we obey Him little. This command to walk blameless for God is couched in this language of, I am the Almighty God, always present, and be blameless. So the first thing we have to do is realize the bigness and the presence of God. And secondly, that you are always in His presence, that He's the company you most intimately keep at all moments. From time to time, we hear 
we hear of and we see sweet moments of God's grace and God at work, and we're thankful for those moments. But He's not merely at work in those times. In those sweet moments that we talk about, He's always at work. He's always present. You're always walking before Him. One implication of that is actually makes sense of why Paul tells us to give thanks at all times. Because Jesus is actually at work at all times. And when we get that, we praise, which is exactly what Abram does in verse 3 as he falls down in worship. The call to live devoted, consecrated, belonging to the Lord is in light of this new perspective before the Lord and calling you to maturity and to repentance. So we're given that new perspective, but we're actually also given, or Abram is given, a new identity. First three verses are kind of the introduction, and then God's explanation of His covenant. Verses 4 through 8, God says, as for me, and He explains His side of the covenant. And then verses 9 through 14, He actually says, and as for you, and He explains Abram's side of the covenant. And so here God tells him what God's going to do for him. Behold, my covenant was with you, and you shall be a father of the multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, what's God doing right here? All right, a little bit of audience interaction. Everybody look at the person on your right. People in the end, you just don't get to participate. Um, can you think of them without thinking of their name? You can't do it. Try to think about your parents. Huh? <laughs> You can't think of your parents without thinking of their name. You can't think of anybody without thinking of your name. You never just see a face. You see a face and a name. Their identity and their name are inextricably attached. Our identity is our name. And God's making a point with Abram right here, who's now called Abraham. He was known by a name that actually meant great or exalted father, which either testified to either him or, or his dad, Terah. And his new name is actually father, not of a multitude, and not father of nations, but actually father of a multitude of nations. He was known by one name that spoke of his greatness, and now he's actually given a name that speaks of God's greatness. Because in case you're wondering who's responsible for Abraham becoming a multitude of nations, verses 3 through 8, I will multiply you. I have made you a father of a multitude. I will make you fruitful. I will make you nations. I will establish my covenant. I will give you land. I will be their God. Do you see who the primary actor is? The name change, the new identity is God saying, you are now Abraham, father of the multitude of nations that I will make of you. Your name is no longer a testimony to your greatness, but a testimony to mine. He's been given a new identity, and with a new identity comes a new purpose. When I was ordained a couple of years ago, there was something, there was a new name attached to my name called pastor or shepherd, and that name, it's now attached to my name, tells something of what I do. When a doctor finishes medical school, something is attached to their name, and that name tells us what they do. They're doctors. A lawyer is called, when they finish law school and pass the bar, something's attached to their name, their attorney or their counselor. Names tell us about how we act. So this new identity is not just a new name, but also a new purpose. This is Abraham, father of the nations that God made, multiplied and made fruitful by God, one through whom God will bring kings that will find its climax in King Jesus. Abraham, the one whom God gives the land, which in Romans 4.12 we realize the final fulfillment of that is not just him receiving Canaan, 
but actually the whole world is to be for God's people. But God gives the whole earth to people, and Abraham, the one whom God made his everlasting covenant. This is who's making Abraham. This is what he's been doing, and he's currently accomplishing, and he's bringing fulfillment. If you are one of Father Abraham's children, which we sang right, in, in VBS, Vacation Bible School, then you have this same purpose as well. It's not merely that you're a Christian, and so you got saved, and so you can kind of do what you want. You're a Christian, and you're called to be what God has prepared his people for, which is a blessing to the world. That is your purpose in life, is to be a blessing to the world. What it means is you're a Christian, and those around you are served by you. That you're a son or a daughter of the host, and you serve alongside of the host. You're not somebody who's seeking their own well-being, who's seeking their own comfort, who's making the decisions of what's easy for me, how can I make this more comfortable, how can I become more successful, how can I raise my reputation, how can I get what I want. We are those who serve and who bring good news to those around us. This is the real question when you call yourself one of Abraham's children. Are you a blessing? There's a story, I read a sermon on this text, or rather a commentary, and this pastor talks about a friend of his in Denver, Colorado, several years ago who lived in an apartment building, had been renting there for several years, and the rent rates went up. And this guy went to the manager and said, I can't afford these rent rates. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to break my lease and get out. And um, the manager said to them, said to this guy, he said, we love having you in this building. You've been a blessing to all the tenants here. We'll make the rent whatever it has to be to keep you here. Do you make the place around you start to look like Eden? Start to look like the way the world is supposed to be? Do, the people, do people look at you? Do they examine your life and see a humble sinner that repents? A humble sinner that repents and seeks to serve and seeks to love and seeks to forgive as you've been served and as you've been loved and as you've been forgiven. You're taking the blessing that you've been given. See, it's from grace from beginning to end. You're taking the grace you've been given and you're giving it to the world. What it looks like is, is that we stop actually making all our decisions based on what's best for us, but rather we actually ask the fundamental question. This is the question you ask for your roommate assignments, for your major, for dating, for what you're going to do afterwards tonight or this weekend. How might I be a blessing? <clears throat> In some sense, this is our calling here if you're a child of Abraham. If, you're, if you've taken hold of the promises of God by faith, your goal is to make the, the University of South Carolina community say, I wish there were more Christians here. I wish there were more people like that here. And that means, and it's hard, and it is hard. And if you want to know what it looks like, all we do is we look at Jesus and we look at the way he blessed us. It means that we stop obsessing about our anxieties and our worries and our ego and our reputation. But instead of being impatient, we become patient because God's been so patient with us. Being joyful instead of bitter because the Lord has delighted in us. Being a person who seeks peace instead of revenge because God sought and made peace for us. It's being someone who's giving with their time and with their resources and with your attention to the people who need it 
Because that's exactly what God did for us. Do you see that it's actually grace from beginning to end? It's God's grace that gives us our new identity and God's grace that drives us into that purpose and gives us the capacity to struggle to figure it out. We are God's children. We are Abraham's children. We actually are the multitude of nations. We're Gentile. I, almost everybody in this room I think is Gentile, except for Patain. Um, <laughs> we got engrafted in. He was in all along. Um, being a part of this group of people, a part of the church, being numbered among those who are Christ. Just like any group, it gives you a new perspective because you keep a new company and it changes your behavior and it gives you a new identity. And this is what God does at the end. He seals it with a sign. A a new sign. He gives us a new sealing sign. Just like any group you become a part of, there are signs that mark your membership. When you join a sorority or fraternity, right? There are signs that mark your membership that you wear on you. There are letters that you wear. When you join any kind of team, right? You wear that team. When you came to South Carolina, y'all own more Carolina stuff now than beforehand. You actually wear signs of the community that you're a part of. Signs serve as very powerful public indicators of where your allegiance is. And what we need... Um, I'm sorry, my notes are messed up. Oh, uh, Now, what's the importance of the sign that God gives, this confusing sign... In Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, verses 3 through 8, God is saying, As for me, I will, I will, I will, I will. And then we get to verse 9, and it's as for you. And this is the moment where we most likely would expect, As for you, here's what you do to keep in mind good graces, right? Here are all the commands because there's a catch in this Christianity thing. It just can't be free, right? There's no way it's really grace freely given. So here's the catch in verse 9. As for you, you shall keep my covenant... You and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep. This is the covenant. This is Abraham's end of the deal. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Abram's covenant-keeping responsibility consists literally in the sign and actually carving the sign of the covenant into his flesh. That's what's required of him. It's not, and, okay, now you have to do all these things. It's actually this. Here's your end of the covenant. Wear the sign of the covenant on you. Now, what's the importance of the sign? It's this. To be in covenant with God, to be covered by God's covenant, you had to cut off flesh. And in verse 14, they're actually very strong words. Any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You can't be in God's covenant people in the Old Testament if you are not circumcised. And what's happening in the Old Testament, and this is actually the point he's making, either flesh has to be cut off or you get cut off. And what he's saying there, Paul actually explains to us in Colossians because needless to say, when Jesus comes along, people are really confused. And what's happening in a lot of the first... Uh, a lot of the New Testament books, you read them in this light. The Jews are really confused because they're looking at Genesis 17 that says, if you are not circumcised, you are cut off from my people. And they're saying, okay, grace and everything, but these are strong, very direct words, right? So we'll take grace, but also you've got to get circumcised. And this is what Paul is dealing with in most of his ministry. And in the book, of Coloss- book to the church at Colossians, he actually explains to us what we're to see and what we're to understand. 
You can't be God's covenant people if you're not circumcised. And Paul explains, and this is what you need to remember. This is a sign. There's a sign, and then there's the thing signified. And those two things are different from each other. They're not the same. Follow me. It's a little abstract thought. They're different from each other, but they're related to each other. They're different to each other, but they're related to each other. When um, you see a sign directing you towards Williams Bryce, the sign points you toward and gets you to Williams Bryce, but the sign itself is not Williams Bryce. Do you get what I'm saying here? They're different. They're related to each other, but they are distinct from each other. The sign and the thing that's signified are not the same things. And I say that because Paul begins to tell us what the sign of circumcision was pointing toward in Colossians 2. 2.11, in him, also talking about Jesus, in Jesus you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You were circumcised with a circumcision not made by hands, by the putting off of the body of flesh, by, which is the circumcision of Jesus. Now what's Paul talking about there? The sign said flesh had to be cut off so that you would not be cut off. And what he literally is saying is what you don't see is Jesus is what the sign was pointing to. This is what he's dealing with in church. He's saying that sign, like all signs, was pointing toward a reality. Who is Jesus? Jesus is your real spiritual circumcision. He was flesh and he was cut off for you. The Old Testament act of cutting off of our flesh by hands doesn't save you. It's a sign that points to the one who became our filthy flesh and was cut off. Hebrews 9.22, there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Circumcision points to the cross. Our consecration, our belonging to the Lord, is never merely a a legalistic demand to be a moralist. It's a gracious command. Do you realize what he's telling Abraham right here? He's saying, here's your end of the covenant. Carve into your flesh a reminder of my grace. What a sweet end of the deal. It's a gracious command. Following Jesus is a gracious command to be a servant of the Lord and be a blessing to the world. And it's driven by grace shown to us. Grace. When the text says, as for you, verses 9 through 14, was where we think, all right, here's the catch. Here's the catch to this Christian. I knew it was moralism, right? I knew it was moralism. Abram's covenant obligation was to wear a sign of grace. To literally carve a reminder of grace into his flesh, to wear a sign of God's grace in Abram's most intimate and what we think of oftentimes as the most inappropriate and dirty place. And it's as if God is saying, I lavish grace over all of you, every part of your body. I've purchased everything, even the parts that we think of as dirty or inappropriate. I've forgiven all of you. I've justified all of you. Abram was given a covenant commands, and his covenant command was receive grace and be marked by that grace. And being marked actually by how expensive that grace was for God. 
because it was grace that costs blood. And he wants Abraham to bear the sign daily. It takes blood to forgive. It takes blood for you to be restored. It takes blood for you to be redeemed. Blood given graciously. This is the application because here's what we're struggling with. This is a hard text to consider what it means to be a blessing to the world, to consider what it means to live in such a way in your community so that people wish there were more Christians there. And if you're wondering, why do I have no concern for building the kingdom? Why do my anxieties bear me down? Why do I not care about being a blessing? And we're all going to walk out of here, and I referred to this earlier in the semester, we're all going to walk out of here and have our Doug moments, you know, where it's squirrel, and just all of a sudden our direction, our attentions are re-diverted, right? Abraham saw grace carved into his flesh every day. Bloodshed to be with God, a reminder of grace given. This is your application. We don't, like Abraham, anticipate grace and look forward to some mysterious event in the future when blood would be shed. We don't look at our bodies and see grace carved in our flesh. We look at the cross. And we see the flesh that was cut off from the world on our behalf. The application is actually look at the cross. The application is remember grace. The application is meditate on mercy. Remember redemption and remember forgiveness freely given to you. Remember that Christ was cut off, that you wouldn't have to be. And this is the grace that drives us to be a blessing in the world. It's grace from beginning to end. Let's pray.